Welcome to the Makom Israel Teachers Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners with Israel by discussing and exploring current events and relevant issues. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How you doing, Alan? Doing great, Mike. All right. Well, today we have a special guest to discuss an often overlooked topic in Israel, the the struggle and the war in Lebanon, which is a war we haven't even really given a name to. Um, Alan, would you introduce our guest? Sure. I'd be uh, honored and privileged to introduce Susan Singer, who was an editor and writer in Washington, D.C. for Moment Magazine and Biblical Archaeology. Um, since her Aliyah 1998, her focus has moved to helping young people build their Jewish lives. Um, her family founded the Alex Singer Project in memory of her son, Alex Zichron Livracha, who died in a battle in the IDF in uh, Lebanon. The project works to publicize and the inspirational writings and artwork of Alex. Um, and uh, I'll even give a plug now to, to one should already go out and buy the book if you haven't. It's, a, it's really a classic in Israel and Zionist education. Thanks for being with us, Suzanne. Welcome. It's a pleasure. It's absolutely a pleasure. And this is the book he's talking about. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, uh, I, 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 well, okay. So, um, you wrote a blog post recently, which is why we thought, uh, well, that's why we, you know, brought us to mind and, and invited you. What, what about, you, you wrote it because you said May was an anniversary. Can you explain the timing of uh, why you said you wrote in the, um, in the Times of Israel piece about how just give the timing sort of of the history of the, the ending of the Lebanon War. The motivation for writing it was that I knew that the 20th year anniversary was about to happen. And that was May 24th, I believe. And the, the 20th year anniversary of the withdrawal from Lebanon. Yes, yeah. I'm, uh, it was the 20th anniversary of taking all the Israeli uh, soldiers who had been embedded within the southern Lebanon, uh, south of the Latani River. It was considered a, a security zone. And it was from that, those positions and fortresses in uh, southern Lebanon that the soldiers went in and out, uh, and they many of them stayed for long periods of time, uh, as much as long periods for an Israeli army soldier, mm-hmm. a month perhaps, or sometimes more, under very difficult conditions. And, but it was the war without a name. It was the war of 20 years uh, that, uh, that, didn't, that didn't even end up with some sort of insignia that indicated that I fought in this war because there was none. And because of this, uh, and because of things I had written previously and what Alex had written and, um, and the fact that, that our son in 1987, uh, all of these came together and that's why I decided to do the blog. Now, I think we should give the listeners who don't really have a, a, a perspective on this event, Israel, the Israeli army controlled this part of southern Lebanon for 18 years, starting in 82. 1982. Yeah. 80, well, 82 was the war. Right. right. And uh, actually, it, it 
really started a couple of years later, but uh, basically it was after the war in 82. And during that war, by the way, the Israeli army went all the way to Beirut and Arafat and his, and his followers were sent off to Tunisia. Mm-hmm. It says that the internet is unstable. Well, we'll we'll have to work through. Don't That's worry. the problem with uh, podcasting in the age of Corona. Um, I'm also unstable, so we keep going through <laughs> with it anyway. So. <laughs> I figured. Now, what was the purpose? If the war was in '82, what was the purpose of holding that that land under the Latani rivers for so long? Usually, Israel goes in. You know, historically, Israel has this like uh, very short term battle plan. But this holding on to that large amount of South Lebanese territory, what was the what was the uh, strategic reason for that? I guess it was pretty simple. The, the South was the area that was lived in by Christian Lebanese and Sunni Lebanese. They were different. And it was the Shia, the, uh, the, the followers of the PLO, that were wanting to penetrate into Israel's northern villages. And they were. Mm -hmm. They were coming through, they were crossing the border, and they were killing people. And uh, so the whole idea was to make that a kind of sanitary zone south of of the Latani, and they built fortresses. And one of the things I mentioned in what I wrote is they were given very poetic names. They were given names like... uh, uh, cypress and turmeric and pumpkin and Beaufort and uh, it, it, they sounded rather these bota- uh, these beautiful botanical names yeah yes uh, you know like a holiday resort but they weren't they were uh, they became more and more difficult and more and more soldiers died and we we lost during that during that period of about 18 years um, we lost over 600 soldiers, including 73 who died in a double helicopter crash over Israel as they were about to come into, into their fortresses in Lebanon. But the purpose of it was simply to protect the northern villages, to protect Israel and to keep the, uh, the terrorists under the PLO from coming in. A military buffer? To protect Israel's northern border. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, why do you think they use those pretty botanical names for the forts? Like, is there? I have no idea. Do Beaufort, you have thoughts, Alan? That was an uh, before was an old fortress. Yeah, and, that name was already. And that has some history, but no, I have no. I really have not. It's uh, sure. a strange military court. There's court-y. a unit. There's a unit in the IDF that picks like names for things, like operation name, operational names, and all those things. So, <laughs> don't know. Maybe it was to signify a peaceful intent, but I I should say that during the period when our son Alex was in in Lebanon, there was a great welcoming of Israeli soldiers. Mm-hmm. By whom? Um, by the Christians in South Lebanon, and mm-hmm. probably by the Sunni, but I particularly know about the Christians, yeah. because our son Alex, who was an artist, did a very big mural 
it was it was basically 360 degrees from the Hermon to the Mediterranean. And he wow. did it from the rooftop that he would. And they loved the, the soldiers. And when he finished his mural, they they hung the mural in the in the hospital. Wow. So there was a period of time when the, when Israel was was the was very gratefully received. Yeah, but I don't know how much that yeah, I don't know how much that changed among the Christian population, who I think still have uh, relatively positive feelings towards Israel and enjoyed the feeling protected by the soldiers. What did you want to say, Alan? Yeah, I just want to say if we kind of make a, a sort of a clear what's happening there in South Lebanon is is that um, you have outside really terrorist groups coming in, taking over control from the local population. Uh, who are often Christian or, or uh, you know, um, other type, right, other ethnicities or religions than the than other than the groups coming in, and using it as a as a base to attack Israel and to continue to continually attack Israel. And Israel did something completely different than it's done anywhere else, but set up a security zone in a place that Israel never intended to incorporate into Israel. It's not a, a historically Israeli lands or what have you. And, yeah, look to go back a and step. Also. Yeah, just finish. One thing that also comes out of that to show that there was a, a sort of a difference between local population and maybe what people often read was there was um, in Metula something called the Good Fence, mm-hmm. right? Which was an open border where Southern Lebanese residents would come and work in Israel. They came over the border every day to come and work in Israel, and they went back every day. And also medical, there was a, there was flow of people coming coming back and forth. So it wasn't really right um, characterized as uh, um, as uh, as a war the whole time, right? Um, and of course, then there's this fighting of the incendiary uh, terrorist groups, whether it was the PLO when in 1982, and then till Israel eventually kicked them out uh, a couple years later, or then the, it's slowly increasing in what we see today, the takeover of Hezbollah, which is the Shiite, you know, radical Shiite um, terrorist group that um, is, you know, maybe one of the most biggest threat Israel faces today um, since we left, really, in, in the 2000s. Yeah, but just to go back one more step, Lebanon is a very interesting story. You, you, re- you know, people don't always think about the fact that they weren't involved in 73 war or the 67 right. war. Lebanon was a relatively, it was a, 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 it was a, a very uh, heterogeneous society of different, different types of people. And uh, for whatever reason, the French set it up that the Christian leadership kept things pretty quiet. And in fact, it was beautiful. Beirut was known as this beautiful resort city. We think of it today, our associations are all post-war. We think of Beirut as like a a bombed-out shell. But Beirut in, let's say, the 60s was a beautiful place you could go on the coast of the Mediterranean. And Lebanon was this lovely, lovely place. But part part of what destabilized it was the influx partially of the PLO fleeing Jordan into southern Lebanon and trying to run their own little mini-state. And that's how it started attacking Israel's northern border. Israel struck back, and then Israel created this safe zone, which was an experience Israel only tried really once. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, not to say that the impulse to, to make the safe zone was a bad thing, in fact, one of one of the points I, I I tried to make and was really the motivation for writing what I did was that there are times when soldiers 
need to protect civilians. Mm -hmm. And that's a noble cause. But this became a constant loss of soldiers. It didn't seem to be effective. Um, it did, I'm sure, prevent many incursions into mm -hmm. northern, northern Israel. But it also lost many IDF lives. And um, what happened was that a movement that developed that was given the name the Four Mothers. And these Four Mothers, uh, toward the end of the period, uh, I believe it was the last four years, when they began, they weren't mothers who had lost sons in, the, in uh, Lebanon, uh, but they were very uh, sympathetic, as we all were, and, and outraged that we would remain in there when there were already more than 600 so, uh, dead soldiers, and particularly after the helicopter crash. And so they started a, a movement which was very grassroots, and it developed, and it developed, and it developed. And uh, when Ayoud Barak ran for prime minister, one of his promises was, we will get out of Lebanon. And uh, he did. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think anybody honestly can say that the that the the the, the strategic thinking was inherently bad. But it just. I think the argument became on a cost based analysis. We can surely protect the northern border better from our side. That that it's worth paying the price for holding onto their side. Weren't the four mothers really sort of uh, set off by the crash of those helicopters? I'm frozen. Not bereaved mothers. They were not. Uh, this was something that in interested me because they were in the press. They've been they've been projected as people who had lost sons there, and as one who actually did, I was. I was not complaining that they were saying we should get out. That's one can have that view, mm -hmm. but uh, should be but they, truthful. I, but I, I, my, I apologize. My, uh, my Zoom got a little uh, unstable on my end. Uh, did they were they were sort of set off by the helicopter crash? No. Uh, yeah, yeah, Sona that, Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, we spoke that, about that. That was definitely. That was definitely. I think the precipitating yeah. factor for doing it. I imagine they had been talking about it, you know. It, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know, but it had occurred. Yeah. Well, they went and, and, the, and they had gone to shipping in soldiers by helicopter, even though the distances are small, because uh, the terrorists were coming up with or were coming up with uh, uh, improvised explosive devices so that the roads were too dangerous. So they started helicoptering in the soldiers and then the helicopter crash, that itself became dangerous. And so the whole enterprise just, the Four Mothers movement just was this position that it, this is too complicated. Yeah, I, I think there are people, people that will argue uh, that it could have been done better mm -hmm. or we should have left earlier. There, mm -hmm. there are many things. Uh, I don't feel competent to... To, to get into that. I think the only thing I'm willing to say is that there are times when when soldiers 
being a barrier to the death of civilians, which is what this was, is uh, is what armies do. Armies yeah, but that's it, it, it's hard to hear you say it because your son was one of those people who who was that barrier who did who did stand that's on the that wall and protect I us. Can say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because I'm sorry, I want to read to you what Alex said, because although it was in 1985, that's early, and it's before a lot of the casualties, but he wrote to a friend who was very skeptical. He was a girlfriend of his at uh, Cornell University where he graduated, and she she felt it was terrible that he make Aliyah and terrible that he go into the army. He was a volunteer. He didn't have to, but he, became, he made Aliyah and he went in the army. And she was all the time telling him that she didn't approve of that. And he wrote the following. He said to Catherine, just remember that being where I am is not the result of my worldview, but of the fact that if we or I weren't here, Israel would live in terror. And because we are here and what we do, even the settlements and the border are quiet at night. And that's a soldier's perspective. And that is, in some ways, that's what I'm honoring. I'm saying that there were thousands of soldiers, a whole generation of soldiers who served there and are ignored. And they were as difficult as it was, and as maybe as bad as the military decisions may have been at some time, and maybe they should have removed them earlier, there is still a noble purpose that was being served. And that's really what, what I think is, is very sad, and, and that's being repaired by these, this new Facebook page. Can you, can you tell us a little about the Facebook page? Yeah. I didn't know about this myself, but I was told about it by somebody who knows it very well, who served in Lebanon. There's a Facebook page called Stories from Lebanon. It just went up just before the anniversary uh, a few weeks ago. Stories from Lebanon, what happened in the outposts? And it's received 36,000 individual members of the Facebook page hmm. and a hundred thousand posts. Now this is, uh, this is a pent up need mm -hmm. of these people to say, yeah, we were there and they're talking to each other now Yeah, and they're being recognized. You're saying and this is in two weeks. This happened. This went up in two weeks. This Well, maybe it was three weeks. I don't know. Whatever. A couple weeks. Whatever yeah. it was. It was very yeah. recent and it, it, it was on the, on the run-up to the anniversary of the 20th year. And when I heard about that, that's what I really, when I really felt that I had to write something because, you know, it's one thing to be, to be serving and living and doing very difficult things, but it's when your society doesn't recognize you're yeah. doing it for them and you come back and you're ignored, the, these soldiers suffered from that. Well, whatever the whatever the politics were, whatever the mistakes were, if there were in your in somebody's opinion, these people contributed and sacrificed and struggled for the nation, just like any other, and and they should be honored, you know, like any other soldier. It's not so different than what America went through 
after the Vietnam War. And those yeah, veterans yeah. struggled so long to say, whatever your politics are, shouldn't yeah. we be appreciated as people who contributed? They suffered badly. badly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and Lebanon is nothing like Vietnam in the sense of I mean you, it's hard to argue that Vietnam was strategically done properly by the government, but again, but that so so that was so much, you know, such an egregious miscalculation by the leadership. But that has nothing to do with the contribution of the soldiers who were there. They have to be any society that has people you know putting their life on the line to protect them has to honor those people for their contribution. I agree, and and I have to, in in honor of my own husband's memory, because he died just before the COVID came in January. Mm, I'm sorry. Uh, he uh, he disagreed uh, about the the Vietnam War in many ways, and 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 wrote about it. So uh, I have to at least mention that there were there were different opinions also about the Vietnam War. But I I recognize yours as being the the one that. Uh, that is is dominant, but we both agree that the soldiers yeah. there after that war and the soldiers here after Lebanon had in common that they weren't respected, that they weren't honored, that they weren't noticed, that they weren't thanked. The and war that, has no name; so, it has yeah. no insignia; it has no it has no recognition in Israeli society. I don't know that it's taught about in schools. Yeah, I don't know that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I actually, know. the war with no name is what I learned from Mati. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the wonderful, uh, Mati Friedman wrote a fantastic book that I that I highly recommend, uh, Pumpkin Flowers. Not only about his, also about his experience serving there, but giving sort of a bigger picture of that war and what it meant in Israeli society and what it means today. It's a very well-written. How many, how many yeah. boys did you have who uh, served in Lebanon? Uh, two of our four sons served the limit. Our, our Alex's younger brother came first, and he uh, right after high school, and he he went into the paratroops, and he served in various times uh, as a soldier, and then a miluim in in reserve duty. Reserves, right? Even after Alex had been killed, he served yes. in Lebanon. Uh, well, he started his service before, right? But he was at Beaufort, one of the major fortresses for a month, I believe, in uh, 1990 after Alex was killed. And uh, our younger son, Benji, um, he didn't serve in a combat unit. He decided not to as a result of the death of his brother. Mm -hmm. And our older son, Saul, was too old to be required. Yeah, uh, it's so it's so complicated. Do you can can you give us at least? I know you know. In in, it's it's hard to ask for a short description of your son Alex because it's anything that's short is always unfair. But can you sort of give our listeners a sense of Alex, who he was? Uh. Yeah, I can. Um, I think I will start from from the time of the Shiva. <laughs> now I'll go back a little bit. Alex, Alex, uh, briefly, his bio is he grew up. Well, let me go back to what we did with our four sons in 1973. 
we came for a year because our eldest son Saul was a year away from bar mitzvah. We weren't we weren't religiously uh, knowledgeable. We were very uh, identified Jews, but we we had felt we had nothing to give, and we lived in a lovely suburb of New York, and there was nothing there for him either. So we said, okay, we'll come to Israel for a year. We'll throw them into the Israeli schools, even though they don't know Hebrew. And uh, it will be an experience. We ended up staying for four years, and it was a very, very impactful experience. We went back to the States, and to switch to Alex, each one of the boys had his own path in different ways. But Alex uh, finished high school, public high school in Washington, and then went to Cornell University. He learned some Russian, he learned some some Arabic before he went in the army. Uh, he was always a writer. He was always an artist from the time he was a little boy. Uh, this is before all the electronic uh, devices and he was writing whatever he felt like saying he would write and he would, uh, he would be drawing all the time. He was always carrying a sketchbook. So uh, after he, in his junior year, he went to the London School of Economics, took a year off. And during, and during, that, during, that, year, during that year, those had once lived, but were gone because of the Shoah. There were no, he went to Italy, he went to Spain, um, he went to Russia to visit Refuseniks. Now most people listening don't know who Refuseniks are, but those were the, the Russian Jews who were prevented from leaving because they were Jewish and their lives, their livelihoods, their learning, everything was, was uh, very in, the Soviet Union. in the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union before the end of the communist time. And those people uh, needed support. And so Alex got a name to secretly visit refuseniks in the Soviet Union. And he found them, and he was very, very moved by the necessity to have a, a Jewish state and for the necessity to support Jews who were in terrible trouble as they were. And uh, so the experience of his year in the London School of Economics was not so much what he did at the school, but what he experienced and how at the end of it, having written a, a senior thesis, which uh, is really, it's up in full on the website. It's called alexsingerproject.org is the website. And you can find something called Letters from the Diaspora, which was basically Alex's senior thesis, but it was also his exploration of what he was going to do with his life, which was to come to Israel and make Aliyah as a result of, of the experiences he had had. And how long, how long, was, he, how long was he here? How long was it? Oh, what you mean when we came into 73? No. We came no, no, by no. the way in no, our, After college. After college, when Alex came back, how long did he live here? Oh. Oh, he made Aliyah after college. He in lived here. He lived in the building I live in right now. He lived mm. in a room downstairs. And he was here. We were still in Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, his younger brother was here. The two other brothers were still in the States, and he was here. 
and he served here and he died here and and actually the place that uh, the wall I'm sitting in front is the boundary between my apartment our apartment and the one that a friend of ours owned where we sat Shiva mm-hmm. and at that Shiva I think right that week that there were so many writings that people came with. Nobody ever threw out his letters. And, you know, we're not talking about anything digital, totally paper, yeah. air letters. Nobody knows what an air letter is anymore unless you're over the <laughs> age. Aerogram, the aerogram. That you would, buy, oh my gosh. you would buy it and it already had a stamp on it and you wrote on it and then you folded it and then you put it in. What's oh my gosh, that flimsy wax. blue paper that felt like wax paper. Yes. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. the people came with these letters that they never threw out. And we had family letters. Nobody ever threw out Alex's letters. I wouldn't say nobody, but many, many, many people didn't throw them out. And as a result, as a result of that, we had all these letters and we said, you know, they really do, they speak about a life. They're not just, uh, you know, here I am, I'm sitting in a restaurant, I'm eating falafel. Um, there's stories and stories about people. And uh, we knew we had to do something with them. And that's, it took us almost 10 years to finish the, the collecting, the organizing, the editing, and then the, the producing of, of what turned out to be Alex Building in Life. And today, 30, almost 33 years later, young people who were born... Being, and being inspired by this writing, by being inspired lived. by it. I find uh, it read this book uh, no. with yeah. uh, a spirit of meeting a friend. Yeah, so yeah inspired of by his writing to... Hearing from somebody. Yeah, it's, thought about what to it's do a powerful educational tool and for them to meet somebody who's around think, their age. And whether they agree with, you know, choose the same things he chose, but that it's a model of how write, to think about think things deeply and, you know, and, and make values-driven decisions. Yeah, and uh, one of the things we did, and you may not have even come across this because I don't know that it's widely circulated, but educators find it very helpful. It's called, my husband Max did this, it's called Directory of Issues That Alex Speaks To. And under each one, like reactions to death, army versus college, joining the army, Pesach, sketching and natural beauty. I'm just randomly choosing. Under each topic, what he did was he put a letter that Alex wrote related to it. And so somebody can pick up this list. And if they want to talk about uh, difficulties in the army, I'm doing this very randomly. Difficulties in the army. You can go to a particular letter in February of '85 and and you read about struggling to get into the paratroops. And it goes on and on like that. But it's a mm-hmm. it's a wonderful tool. I'm speaking to educators. Why do you- <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate it? Why why do you think? That Israeli society and Israeli culture has is has up until now left this period behind. This was such a, a wrenching part 
of life. And it was, it was on all our minds in real time while it was going on. It's not like it happened and it was off our radar, but in memory, it seems to fade. And now there's this movement, like you're saying, to, to, to bring it back to collective memory. But why did it disappear from collective memory, do you think, for the last 20 years or so? I mean, the withdrawal was so traumatic. Well, I remember we were, I mean, it was, whatever your political opinion, it was a difficult, difficult, the whole, the whole time was difficult, but that withdrawal left such pain in its wake. Well, the, the withdrawal was, uh, I, I don't know enough to speak about it, but I have read some serious criticism of the withdrawal. And one of the, one of the aspects of it is we had allies there, the South Lebanese army. They were very much in danger. I mean, if you've been an ally of Israel and all of a sudden the, the PLO is coming in and Israel is leaving, oh, you are very in very big danger. So we did take out some number, maybe a thousand, I'm not sure what the number was, that came out with our soldiers. But we left behind many. That's one of the things. And uh, I, I, I don't feel capable to speak to the, the military details of the withdrawal, except to say that I sense that it was done with a sense of panic and leaving some equipment behind. And it was not impossible to think of it as a retreat. Well, Hezbollah described it as a retreat. And I think uh, I I I mentioned something in what I wrote, which I'm not unique to have said, although nobody, not everybody agrees, that the fact that we pulled out in 2000 and the fact that the Intifada, the second Intifada, started in 2000, and if you just were in Jerusalem at that time. You know, you can mention all the people that were killed in that in that terrible time of terror, which went on for four years. I think it's very hard to say that it wasn't related to the to to the sense that we had been defeated by terror, and terror worked. And uh, not. I, I yeah. Go ahead, Alan. Yeah, I, th- I think if that's the chief reason why the war kind of got. Yeah, tucked under, you could say. I don't know if there was anything purposeful about it, but whether or not one was a cause or another, uh, that's a uh, you know a big uh, uh, another big discussion, um, as Suzanne related to. But I think there's two main things. One is that since the the second fight started months later, um, it really just it just took over, and it was much more it was it was much more deadly to the civilian population mm-hmm. of Israel um, in terms right. of war. So that really took the. Yeah. Uh, one thousand and, and the second one, yeah. One thousand one hundred thirty-seven Israelis were killed between two thousand and two thousand five. Yeah, and eight hundred eighty-seven right. exactly. were civilians. And yeah. you know, yeah. if I were to mention Aroma or the the cafe downtown or the Haifa Hello, cafe or the, the yeah. wedding hall, the Dolphin we area, yeah. I mean, yeah, right. It was it was exactly. terrible. And all our exactly. I agree with you, Alan. I think, uh, and I, I think, think that's why the second reason. Yeah. I think the second reason is because as as traumatic as it was, I remember it very, very clearly. Um, and a, a cousin, a cousin of ours, was uh, in Kirchmona, was a Mora Chayel, an army teacher, 
mm-hmm. and you know remembering they were in the shelters for a couple days not sure what was going to happen da, da, da. and all and nothing happened actually yeah. and for six years until the second Lebanese war not to not to um, underestimate that tragedy right. and the terribleness of the second Lebanese war it was an extremely quiet border so on the one hand you have very difficult what's going on in Israel itself right and a very quiet Lebanese border so then and then when Lebanon blasts back on the scene it's a second Lebanese war and that takes over the consciousness so you have the yeah. second intifada and the second Lebanese war that really take over the consciousness just like we don't really like our students have no idea about the first intifada don't right. think about it even right. though for us the first intifada was traumatic right yeah. that was the first real civil uprising so i think it's it's more about a matter of human nature and psychology more than anything but I think also when when something difficult happens in a nation, there's this period afterwards of reflection where there's political writing or even artistic things, and sort of that reflection gets gets stuck in collective memory. But yeah. the second intifada meant there was no time for that exactly. after leaving so, Lebanon. And so that without that period of how how to remember it coll- collectively, it just got forgotten. You're talking about yeah. second intifada, but you meant the Lebanon war. Well, the second intifada yeah. basically displaced thinking about the withdrawal from Lebanon and the Lebanon war. And so we never really formed that period of collective reflection. Right. Yeah. And, and it was much, I mean, it was, it was a terrifying time. I mean, yeah. we, we were here for all of it. I, I, and, uh, you know, I remember sitting in my little study and hearing the uh, cafe blow up with the doctor the doctor from Shard Zedek yeah. and his wife. But everybody's got yeah. stories like his that who, who lived here. But it wasn't yeah. a war in the real sense. It was this just kind of constant dripping of terror. Uh, yeah. The, the Lebanon thing was, you know, it, 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 was, it was a war in that it had bases, it had people conducting it, it had soldiers going in and out doing their service. Uh, that was much more defined, and uh, yeah, I, and I, external. It was not on the home front. It was outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But your overall point that 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 obviously, as soon as you stop and think about it, your overall point is inescapable. That none of that, none of those reasons are remotely anything like excuses, and that that entire action has to be collectively remembered because. All those soldiers who contributed and sacrificed have to be honored as, you know, for, for what they did for us. They were yep. the ones keeping us safe. And there were thousands of them, and they're still here. And they're of an yep. age that matters. And now those yep. thousands are talking to each other on this Facebook page. So we really can't thank you enough, Suzanne, for your thoughts. I, I you know... Whatever. <laughs> I, I, I can't thank you enough because I know in some ways I, I, I would assume that for you it's somehow obviously meaningful for you to talk about Alex, but I feel like uh, I feel like imposing on you that, that, that we that we're talking about your personal I mean your personal loss to educate our students. I feel a little bit guilty, but I but I but I but I think it's so important for them to hear and think about these things. So I really can't thank you enough for for offering your thoughts and your memories and your insight. May I say one more thing? Of course. 
uh, from the time that Alex was killed, we recognized that we had a treasure that could impact on people. The treasure was that he left behind was his writings. And so every that's how the Alex Singer project started. Max called it a project, not a foundation, because we had mm -hmm. work to do. And we've been working to, to bring awareness of Alex and his life and his writings, not as a memorial, but because they, they help people think about what they're doing with their lives. Well, you, you have our deep gratitude for that work, and, that, and uh, it's meaningful to us, and we, we use it with, with students, and we can't thank you enough. And thank you for writing that Times of Israel piece that brought it back as something that we wanted to pay attention to. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, and thank you, Alan. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Macomb Israel Teachers Lounge podcast. Don't forget to share, subscribe, rate, and review. Join us next time.